and welcome. This session is entitled, How Knowing God Helps Us Know Who We Are. My name is Jocelyn Stein, and I am so glad to finally be discussing a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I have been on the Encourage Planning team for almost two years now, and we have long prayed for the impact that these sessions might have on so many women. From my years of ministry leadership and teaching experience, my heart is to help women not only understand the great story of God redeeming this world through His Son, Jesus, but also to help women explore the many stories and themes throughout the Bible in a personal and transformative way. You can find out more about some of the studies that I have written at www.nwbible.study. That's www.northwestbible.study. Back in March, I had a plan for this talk, and then, you know, 2020 happened, and God very much reoriented my plans. All of our plans have been upended, but my particular upending included contracting the virus, and only now, three months later, being on the road to recovery. Even now, as I'm speaking with you, um, I'm regrowing my lung capacity Um, I'm trying to find the strength in my voice to share this very important message. But along the way, the reason I'm doing this is because I, I began to realize that including my personal story was essential to this identity driven discussion. Because suffering is a very great revealer to us about which of our beliefs actually hold true, such as where do we truly find our identity and our purpose? But before I get into my story, and I will get there, let me set up a framework for how we can see the ways in which a crisis like the one that we're in can make us aware of certain ways of thinking and being, precisely because it is so, so disruptive. Can we just all collectively sigh and grieve together about how disruptive and disorienting and overwhelming this year has been? Crises are very exposing to us of what we are actually living for, what we put our hopes in, where our expectations lie, and where we actually find our identity and our purpose and our meaning. And my hope is that this crisis will actually pay off for us, that we will actually be able to, in this disruption, ask really good questions of the things that we had been holding on to, that we need to let go of, the new life that we anticipate being grown from a season of deconstruction, and um, that ultimately we'll find hope from analyzing what we um, maybe don't need to hold on to anymore and the things that we were finding our identity in that were really not serving us at all. As I've been reflecting on this time period, it has made me remember something I learned from Psychology 101 when I was in college, um, studying to become a teacher. We had to take these basic psychology classes, obviously, to understand a student. You need to understand how we're wired and um, not just dispensing information, but really what matters to us. And I was always struck, something that stuck with me, and I promise I will move away from being a psychologist and to back into a personal story and theology where I'm much more comfortable. But I think we can all relate to this picture of Maslow's principles. 
he talks about this idea that as human beings, we have this hierarchy of needs. And in the image that he gives, you picture a pyramid, if you will. But if you're actually looking at it on paper in 2D, just think of a triangle. And if you're looking at this triangle, the way that he expresses and describes what humans need is at the bottom of this hierarchy are our physiological needs, our need for air and food and water and shelter, the basics. And then above that, in a little slightly smaller section of the triangle, is our safety needs, things like our personal security, having employment, having enough resources, our health, having property. And then above that is this what seems a little bit more like a cherry on top to that once those basic needs are met is the line on the, on the triangle or the pyramid that says that we all need love and belonging. And honestly, probably from the majority of the world, like this seems like this is what you're hoping for. But as Americans, we're somewhat spoiled and we actually want and are told that we deserve quite a bit more than this. And so we actually are told that we, or we, or we try to seek the next part up on the triangle, which is esteem. We want respect. We are able to attain a certain amount of status. And in this part of the triangle, we find freedom. And again, that might seem like the triangle is done, but really at the very tip top of this triangle is labeled a little tiny triangle called self-actualization. And this is this desire in us to become the most that we can be. So again, I'm not the psychologist, but I relate to that hierarchy. And as a white, middle-class American, I have actually spent the majority of my life luxuriously occupied by seeking to satisfy the needs towards the top of the pyramid. I've looked for love and belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. I don't often wonder where I'll sleep or if I'll eat enough in a given day. In fact, to be really honest, The vast majority of my time is spent at the very top of the pyramid, asking if I am being the most that I can be. And the thing about it is our world is consistently telling us that that's all that this life is about, self-actualization, be the most that you can be. Every marketer out there, every message that we hear, even if they're promoting something that meets one of those more basic needs, like maybe it's a food or it's a job, It's sold to us as something that is going to get us all the rest of those things. It's going to give us love, belonging. It's going to give us status. It's going to help us become the most that we were meant to be. We're very much bought in to this way of thinking. The unifying principle of this pandemic, however, is that we have all been unceremoniously dumped into step two on this pyramid we, I mean, we've been impacted in different ways, but we've kind of been shockingly asking questions about safety, including health, employment, personal security. For some, it has even brought up the need to wonder about physiological needs such as food and shelter. And this is an incredibly jarring place to be, especially if it's new to you. It's been new for me. But the fundamental principle of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that a person's needs need to be met in order. In other words, if you're hungry, you cannot be all that you were meant to be. And since we find ourselves kind of unceremoniously dumped (laughs) collectively into step two, it's difficult for us because most of us believe it is our basic right to be able to self-optimize at any given time. 
And you add into this, this necessary, very necessary and pressing conversation about race. And ironically enough, this very difficult season that we have been in makes this conversation of where we find our identity suddenly very relevant. And so now I'm going to move out of that psychological standpoint and move swiftly back into theological and personal where I'm much more comfortable and ask you this. Is the driving purpose of your life to self-optimize? Think about this for a moment. In fact, think about it for a long moment. We all buy into this to a degree. So be careful if you quickly disqualify yourself. Also, be equally careful if you can't figure out why it would be a problem to make this the primary driving factor of our lives. Now, our entire lives, we've been told that this is true. So it will take some personal reflection to see where it's affected you. But there are many difficulties that come from believing that your primary purpose in life is to be all you can be. But the three that quickly come to mind for me are one, this honestly leads to an inability to ever be content. Second, it would lead to an inability to ever serve anyone else if it didn't serve you. But third, and this is the most problematic, is it is because it's quite simply not what you were made for. The reality is you were created for a very great purpose, but it is so much grander and bigger than just being all about you. You were made for a relationship with God and with others, and your identity will never be fulfilled by making it all about you. Now, you may have heard that before, but how you see God radically affects how you find your identity and how you see yourself And likewise, understanding how God sees you radically changes everything else as well. But this discussion really is not just about thinking about God rightly. It is about assessing where your heart actually lies by looking hard at what you fear right now, what you have been mad about losing, and what is keeping you up at night. We may think that we know where we get our identity and value from, but let me tell you, when a pandemic comes, we can start to get a sense of the truth by measuring the fierceness with which we missed the things that were canceled or taken away from us. Now, it is okay to miss good things, but for the things that you have not been able to get over, those things likely have a stronger weight over you than is easy to admit. It could be something as simple as security. And right now, it feels like it has been taken from you. It could be your children's quote-unquote right to grow up with a quote normal childhood. Whatever the thing, you're likely ticked about its absence. If you're not sure about the anger that people are feeling right now, just go on social media. It's not hard to find. And maybe you're mad right now too. But honestly, anger is a great mask for fear. And when something we put all our hope in is taken from us, we react. And this is because we are what Timothy Keller calls an idol factories, which is not a very nice term, 
But what it means is when we take good things and we make them into idols that drive us. And what he means by this idea of an idol factory is that while we have been made by God and designed to love and to worship God, our hearts are forever wandering after a great many other loves. And we can all too easily find our sense of identity, value, and purpose in those other things. Suffering has a profound ability to expose us to what we are actually living for. You see, if we believe that our life is primarily about our performance and our ability to self-actualize into all we can be, then the reality of the brokenness, pain, and suffering of this world is enough to do us in. Instead of knowing how to face it, we must somehow avoid it at all cost. A year like 2020 has forced us to look at some very ugly realities that we would rather avoid entirely. In a world where it is all about self-actualization, suffering has no place and no redemptive purposes. The narrative of the Bible tells a very different story, however. Its main characters are deeply flawed and they suffer much. And yet God accomplishes good purposes through them. And the climax of the whole story of the Bible centers on the suffering of God's only son for our redemption and salvation. Not a single person's story is about them becoming all that they can be. No, instead, it is about everyday, average people encountering the living God, being forever changed by that, and finding a joy and a peace that surpasses every difficult experience that they can face, oftentimes through suffering, because they have discovered what they were meant to be living for all along. So here's my story of suffering. It began one week into Oregon's quarantine. I work part-time outside of the house, and all of my work was instantly closed with the stay-at-home orders. We honestly had no idea how long all of this would last. Even if it was just for a couple weeks, however, I had every intention of staying firmly in control, at least of my little family unit. I didn't have all the answers, but I thought I could keep a certain degree of normalcy by setting up a loose schedule for the kids. So that's why what I did while my husband transitioned into working from home. Right before everything closed for good, I hurried out to buy a new pair of running shoes because as a lifelong runner, I knew some good long runs were going to be necessary for me to cope through the houseboundness. Less than a week into the quarantine, however, I went on a walk and I sensed a terrible burning sensation start crawling up my chest. Of course, I was worried. We all were. I quickly self-quarantined in my room and I FaceTimed an online doctor who cheerily told me that I was too healthy to get tested for COVID and I just needed to hang out at home and get well. It was a long week. My fever went down and after 72 hours fever-free, I left my room like I was told, but I did not get better. But everyone said it could take a few weeks and so I hung in there. Three other members of my family had symptoms. They weren't as strong as mine, but worry hung out with me often. It was not an easy time. 
I basically was too weak to do anything, so my husband worked full-time from home, helped the kids with school, and they all together did the chores. Some days I'd feel a little better and try to do something only to be laid up for a couple days after that for the effort. I felt God speaking to me during this time. I talked to him quite sincerely. I knew he was there. I asked for him to heal me. I wondered how bad my case would get. I jotted things down in my journal about things he taught me, um, about depending on him. And I honestly, I thought I was done with my journey. Unfortunately, however, my journey was far from over. About five weeks into the sickness, although I had thought I was getting somewhat better, I took some major steps back. My body started overreacting to all the pain and inflammation and somehow started fighting itself. This led to reactive respiratory attacks and ER and urgent care visits, not because I was dying, but because I was in an intense amount of pain. I ended up in near nonstop pain for basically the entire month of May. The pain would begin the moment I took my first breath of the morning. It would keep me from falling asleep at night and oftentimes was so bad at night that it would wake me up again from sleep. The strongest thing I was prescribed was Tylenol, um, but it didn't touch the pain. About two months into the journey, my lungs did begin to not feel sick anymore from the virus but the inflammation lasted another month. And only after three months in was I finally told, your body is beginning to heal and it is time to start to rehabilitate your lungs. Three months prior, I was running multiple times a week. And when I began the process of lung rehabilitation, I had the inspiration rate of an 80 year old woman. And I'm actually still healing as I record this talk. This has been an incredibly humbling experience in basically every way possible. Essentially, I am someone who likes to be strong. I like to run hard, be perceived as being highly capable, to not be too needy, and on and on and on. As a Christian and as a Bible teacher, no less, I understand the teaching of Scripture that talks about Christ being strong in our weakness And I practice spiritual disciplines to try and help work that reality into my life. But honestly, in many ways, it is a consistent and real struggle for me to admit to weakness, to have weakness, and to not feel like it is a burden to someone else when I do. Case in point, on this journey, my family knew what I was going through, but it took me seven full weeks to ask a small group of friends to even pray for me and to tell them what was actually going on. And the reason I tell you all of this is not to make you either feel bad for me or add to your fear in any way. In fact, I wrestled over and over with the idea of telling it for fear that it would only add to your fear But there is a truth that I need to tell you that far outweighs the fear that we all feel. And that is, God is good. And He has been so good to me. I cannot even think those words right now without tears welling up in my eyes. His goodness 
to me in this season makes me weep. And I need you to hear that. And I also need you to hear that he is not just good because I am healing. He has been good to me the entire time. On one particularly low night, I could not catch my breath. I started to shake from my head to my toes, and I waited for an ambulance to come. On the bathroom floor, I prayed this very simple prayer. I said, Jesus, I love you, but I am not ready to see you yet. That is all. I still could not catch my breath, but in that moment, I was filled with a peace that passed all understanding. I knew that absolutely everything was going to be okay. And that included if he took me home to see him right then. I continued to stare at the floor, shaking, but quite calm and not alone. Instead of bringing me home, a few moments later, my breath came back and I started speaking with the paramedics. And this brought me my first gift of this time of suffering. And that was the removal of fear. There were so many nights before that night where I still prayed and I talked to God and I knew he was there, but I was still filled with fear for myself, for my family. I haven't been fearful since the night on the bathroom floor. And this was the moment for me that the reality that God is strong in my weakness moved from head knowledge and sunk into my very being, from my head to my toes. It is a gift when all the other foundations that you stand on and that you fear losing are taken away and you realize that the one foundation that remains is stronger and far more secure than any of the ones you were so afraid of losing. This point makes me think of a quote that I um, first discovered when I was an English lit major in college, and um, it has stuck with me through the years, and it's by Victor Hugo, and he says this. He says, Be like the bird who, pausing in her flight a while on bows too slight, feels them give way beneath her, and yet sings, knowing she hath wings. Let me say that one more time. It's beautiful and it's easier to see to hear it when you can see it. I'll say it twice. He says, Be like the bird who, pausing in her flight a while on bows too slight, feels them give way beneath her, and yet sings, knowing she hath wings. I've thought of that many times when something below you feels like it's just crumbling away and you can't grasp it and you realize, oh, I can fly. <laughs> This makes me think also of another great analogy I have to share um, that really just fleshes out this point. Um, I was a Young Life leader for years, grew up in a Young Life family. Um, it's an outreach ministry, and if you're not familiar with it, and it has these amazing summer camps. And various times I would take students on these huge ropes courses, and there was one in particular 
when you when you hear the word huge ropes course, you need to understand that that you're at the top of like telephone poles. And um, if you're afraid of heights, it's um, a fairly nerve wracking place to be. And um, I'm not necessarily afraid of heights, but I do not like the feeling of falling. That quote makes me think of my background at Young Life camps. And in case you're not familiar, Young Life is an amazing outreach ministry, but they put on these phenomenal summer camps. And for years, I was a leader, first a camper, and then a leader in all the things. And I would take students on these ropes courses in order to just go through this stretching experience. And I am someone who I would not describe myself necessarily as someone who's afraid of heights, but I don't like the feeling of falling. And um, I would try to get up on these courses. And when I say they're a ropes course and they're up high, I mean like telephone pole high from the ground. So high. And um, I would get on them and I would try to be brave for the students, but I would shake throughout the entire course. And especially at the huge leap of faith jump at the end. And someone at some point said to me, you know what you need to do? You need to test your harness at the very beginning. So basically, you're at the start of the course and you need to let go. Let go of your hands, pick up your feet and realize you don't even fall at all. And so I heard that and I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. So I got up to climb to the very top. They hooked me in and I let go. And I go, oh my goodness, you don't fall at all. And so as you go through the ropes course, I walked through it and all of the elements around me are shaking and they're wobbly and they're meant to kind of make you afraid. And I went through it going, that is not what's holding me up. And so I went through it bravely and strongly and the ropes course actually never gave me fear again. And I think that that is that bigger lesson that God has been trying to work out in me and that I'm hoping brings encouragement to you as well. And that is this reality that the reality of God and his kingdom is one that cannot be shaken. And that is a true comfort if you will receive it. And you know what? I understand that that can be hard to hear and receive. In fact, about a week before my moment on the floor in the bathroom, my husband said something um, fairly similar to that, kind of like, you know what? I think everything's going to be okay. And he meant it in like, in light of eternity and the biggest of pictures. And I remember in that moment going, oh, that is not encouraging to me. I just want my pain to go away. I wanted you to say to me that you got a a thought from the Lord that says, it's all going to be okay today. Like right now, everything is going to be better. And I wasn't comforted at all by that. And then a week later, I'm sitting there on the floor and the Lord is with me. And I think that is the most comforting thing I could have ever received. So if you're not there yet, I just encourage you, hold on to that truth. A lot of things are real, whether or not we believe them or not. And ask the Lord to make that real to you. Ask him to make that a source of comfort to you. Sit with him in prayer and and don't let go of it and say, I don't feel it yet. That's not a comfort to me yet. God, make that a comfort to me. Make that be like the harness. So as everything else shakes around me, I feel okay. Remind me that as the bow of the tree, the branch breaks, that I have wings in you. And that just really gets me to the point of one of these second huge gifts that I received from the Lord in this time. And that is 
really very much to do with prayer itself. Um, I'm a goal-oriented person. Um, if I call you and you're a friend of mine and I have a question in mind, like I called you for the purpose of asking this question, I actually have to remind myself to ask how you are doing and let you talk for a minute before launching into my question. Now, if I'm calling for the purpose of checking in, now that's different because my objective is to hear how you are doing. Therefore, talk away. But the point is, my goal changes the interaction. And it was hard for me to not approach suffering and disorientation in the same way. I think that is true for all of us. We want to make sense out of all of this chaos. And my health journey was difficult for many reasons. But a major part of the difficulty is that no one knew how to help me or to help explain what was going on with me. I would take a step forward only to take many steps back. And then my symptoms would change and I'd feel even more lost than before. And when I came to God, my prayer was unchanging. Please heal me. One clear and shining goal. Even in times when I'm not suffering, I tend to come to approach prayer with the objective of getting an answer. Please help this person. Please help me. Please help me understand. Please forgive me. On and on. My prayer life in this time gradually grew from being about much more than a transaction. And this is where the way that you view God greatly affects the way you see yourself, this world, pain, and his purposes. For example, there were many times in prayer that I was comforted, but I did not get relief from pain. Uh, there were times when I that led me to express my disappointment to God. There was one time, it was a particularly painful day, and I was weary of the whole thing, and I started to sob. And sobbing hurt more. And I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm at the end of myself. And I'm sitting there on the floor in my room. Again, I don't know why this always happens on the floor. And my phone just kind of lit up and all these people who had known I was suffering reached out and they checked in with me and they sent me encouraging messages. And I was like, oh, he sees me. I'm thankful. And even then I got up and I crawled into my bed and I told him, but I'm so sad you didn't take the pain away. And you know what? He heard all that. I didn't feel like I was disappointing him. I didn't feel like I had to perform. I felt like he could hear everything I had to say to him. I could say, thank you so much for sending friends. Help me to trust you for why I'm not healed yet. And what I learned from that was that there was this growing desire in me to praise God even while I suffered, not just when it all went away. And this leads me to think of the similarity, or not the similarity, but the lesson really that so much of scripture has given us that I think oftentimes, especially as Americans, that we overlook. And that is the gift of a lamentation. And a lamentation is a Bible word, but really the reason we don't know it is because we don't practice it. And it's the idea of laying 
out the cry of your heart before the Lord, not running away from him, not taking your disappointment and trying to hide from him who knows all things, but bringing your grief and your sorrow, your disappointment, your confusion, your worry, and your pain before him. And one of my favorite lamentations comes from the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. And he, this is a man who suffered. He loved God, but he suffered. And he says, I want you to listen to these words. And I hope, not hope, I think you will, you will resonate with where we currently find ourselves as a society. And he says this, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I know that we can resonate with a sense of peace and prosperity being gone. Maybe you have faced a disappointment of something that you've hoped from the Lord that you have yet to see. Maybe your soul feels downcast within you. In the midst of that, there is so much power in calling to mind the Lord's great love. Because of it, we are actually not consumed by the things around us because His compassions are never failing and they are new every morning. My third and hopeful gift, and hopefully an encouragement for you as well, is this renewed understanding and belief and restoration of what I had hoped that I had believed all along, and that is that my identity and my security and my value do not actually come from what the world has told me that it should. I kept thinking, you know, with my family, I could do nothing for them. And it was hard. And you know what? (laughs) Like the love that my family poured out to me, the notes my kids wrote, the food that they made for me, the one who serves his love language is food, so he served me food. My husband patiently and lovingly serving me for a long, long stretch was such a gift to realize that their love for me was not contingent on what I could do for them. 
But even that is just an earthly example. And even if they had responded in a different way, that holds true of the Lord. Our value is just quite simply not in what we can offer. However, we do have great value. And that comes from what we contain inside. And this is where, and this whole time, I hope you hear, I'm speaking as if you've considered God. You know of His love and His mercy and His grace for you. You've accepted His Son. And you're walking with Him of sorts in a way that even if you're not perfect, you understand him to be real. And if that's not you, I'll speak to you again at the end and offer some hope for you. But into this moment, I'm speaking to those who have thought and considered and accepted the work of what Jesus has done. And if that's the case, if you've considered Jesus and his death on the cross for you to bring you into restoration and relationship with God the Father, then This last part I want you to hear clearly. Even those of us who consider ourselves a follower of Christ can oftentimes find our treasure in many other things apart from Him, even with our very best intentions. But the word that the Bible tells us, and this comes from 2 Corinthians 4, is that we have a treasure in jars of clay. And what that means is the treasure that we have and this inherent value, this thing that is secure, this thing that gives us hope, is Jesus Christ. And the container in which it abides in us, we are a jar of clay. And you know what? A jar of clay is kind of an ordinary object, but it has given great worth based on what it contains. And it says that because of that, if our treasure truly is not in our own self-actualization, not in our own performance, not in what we can do for others and make them and earn basically our validation and our worthwhileness. If we know it's already contained inside of it, then we can do what also 2 Corinthians said, which is we can be hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. It says that we can be perplexed, which I feel like we probably are right now, but not in despair. What it means is that we could be persecuted, but not abandoned. We might be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. And that is a very great hope and foundation and a place to place our identity and our trust that does not shake, change, or fade and can give us great hope to see our suffering in a very different light. And so some questions that I want you to consider on your own road of suffering as you begin a process, hopefully, of rebuilding your identity on something that is more sure than the ever-changing circumstances of this world is to do maybe these three things. First, pay attention to what you grieved the most when it was taken away. Honestly, I thought I cared too much about my own success, but I realized how much I cared about my kids' success. And until that was taken away and I realized how upset I was, 
I actually didn't even realize how much I was putting into that. But ask yourself a lot of follow-up questions to that. So say, what do I miss? But then why do I miss that so much? What did that give me that I no longer feel like I have? And then secondly, most of us would like to skip over grief as fast as humanly possible. But if we want to attain wisdom and freedom, we must linger there with these kind of difficult questions. And like we saw in the passage from Lamentations, it is okay to cry and grieve over our pain before the Lord. And my encouragement to you would be to please do that with God. Don't run away from Him, run towards Him. Honestly, a trial like we're all going to, through in very different ways, without a lesson learned, is a great tragedy and it's a wasted opportunity. Work through your questions with God. And third, once something is taken from us, we have a great opportunity to rebuild with a stronger foundation, one that is less dependent on circumstances. And this is where it is really crucial for you to consider your view of God Even if you consider yourself a strong believer, we all have areas where we have skewed understandings, like me thinking that it was a burden to ask other people for prayer. So ask yourself this, is God your treasure? How much time do you spend with him? What does that time look like? Is it merely transactional? Remember, God can redeem all things. He is not overpowered by suffering. And through him, you don't have to be either. We have a sure foundation and a hope that outlasts this world It is a very great and precious treasure, and it came through the great suffering of Jesus Christ. If you don't yet know the freedom and assurance that comes from knowing this Jesus, please check out the many resources listed at this conference or find someone you know who does and ask for their help in discovering more. My prayer is that through this season, you'll let the Lord work any suffering that you are facing into healing, peace, restoration, and hope. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.